What's up? Okay. How's it going? So, what's Christmas about? It's about once a year when Santa Claus comes <laughs> to Earth. He <laughs> lives on Earth. Comes from the North Pole and uh, gives presents to uh, people all around the world. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pagan holiday, right? Yeah, well, it used to be. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, we so, used to be uh, pagans. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what? What? Uh, so what? Like. Like so, what? How, why does should Christmas affect us, and what we do? Um, well, first, do you want to maybe? Because I've met a lot of people that don't like Christmas because they say it's a pagan holiday. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit, yeah. and then yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. like the positive side after we talk about the yeah Christmas the and Halloween need yeah. to be redeemed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Halloween's Halloween is a little bit harder for me because I don't know how it fits in with the American or with like the Protestant Western context because like Christmas is easy because it fits within a liturgical calendar, the sort of a long history of Christmas and stuff. I don't really know the history of Halloween well enough to talk about that one, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not Halloween right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> just, just throw a trunk or treat and uh, you're good to go in your church. Park. Okay. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Hey, dive in then. So what's, how does Christmas fit in the liturgical calendar and how should this affect us as Protestants? Yeah. So, um just for the for the other evangelicals out there a liturgical calendar is where the year is oriented and shaped to mirror the life of christ so you're acting out and and thinking about and contemplating the whole life of christ at different points in the year people were mainly only familiar with christmas easter and lent most of the time they know that there's christmas then there's easter and they know that catholics do lent that's usually what people yeah. know um, but the whole liturgical calendar, you start with Advent. So the beginning of the year and the beginning of the Christian year is Advent, um, which is the, uh, the Sunday, the last Sunday in November, usually or something like that. Um, and so we're in the middle of Advent right now. And then, um, and then Christmas, and then you'll have the 12 days of Christmas. So for those who are wondering where that song came from, <laughs> the 12 days of Christmas, my true love gave to me, it's a reference to Christmas tide, which is a 12 day period from Christmas day to January 5th. Um, after that starts Epiphany. Uh, and I'll explain what each of these mean in a second, but Epiphany and then Lent and then Holy Week and then East, and Easter, and then you have Easter tide, which is the period after Easter. And then you have Ascension and then Pentecost. After that, you have Trinity Sunday and some other holidays as well. But mainly the ones that mirror life, the life of Christ are those main holidays. So the, the whole idea is that Advent is the preparation for Christ. Christmas is the coming of Christ. Epiphany is the, is the revelation of Christ. So that's when we uh, think about like the Magi coming and Jesus being baptized and that sort of thing. Um, Lent is the sharing and the suffering of Christ. Um, the Holy Week is the prepar is the preparation for the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And then the Easter Tide is that resurrection period. And then uh, Ascension Day is the Ascension of Christ, obviously. And then Pentecost is the mission of Christ. So it's this whole, this whole reminder of kind of placing yourself within the story. 
you know, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So what he's saying is embody the story that I have taught you with my own life. Don't just, don't just read about it and think about it, but become, be, become part of that story. Like take part in that narrative. So that's what the liturgical calendar does. Okay. So, uh, as someone you're, so you're the liturgist at your church, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so his churches, a lot, plenty, more, more and more churches have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about a liturgical, liturgical calendar. Two years ago, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you say, well, well, and but they say no, but we're going to have a candlelit service on New uh, on Christmas Eve. Yeah, and we're all going to come together, and that will be the day that we maybe sing hymns together. Yeah with a piano or maybe an acoustic guitar. Yeah, acoustic uh, guitar, that's more like yeah. it, yeah, exactly. With a Christmas tree on stage. Yeah. And then, and then after that, we're gonna go back to the rock and roll uh, that we've been doing all year long anyway. Yeah. And then we'll go into the new year and we'll really ramp it up at Easter time. So they, they only really have the two events and maybe they'll do a Pentecost Sunday thing. So, yeah. so what is the importance of the liturgical calendar, especially like, so obviously we're surrounded right now by uh, the manifestation of people celebrating and worshiping within the liturgical calendar. But why is it important for the rest of the year? Like why is it necessary or can we just get rid of it? Yeah. So, um, so Christmas, it's weird how the, it's weird the parts of it that have remained, right? That's the strange part to me. Like, so a couple of things that are interesting about the way that the liturgical calendar has remained as like a subconscious part of Christianity. So you know, Protestants historically, and for good reason, have been extremely against icon usage, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> because there have been many abuses of that sort of thing. Until, and I've seen this twice so far, until Christmas rolls around and they put the nativity in the center of the stage yeah. <laughs> in the worship service, right? I've seen yeah. two churches do this, where the nativity scene goes in line where the cross usually is, like right in the middle of the auditorium, right? Yeah. And so it's like, now that is an image of Christ in worship as an aid to worship, reminding us of the time of the year. I put on a Facebook page recently, I kind of just posted um, our nativity scenes icons. And uh, there was kind of some back and forth. One person said, it's not an icon, it's a symbol. Like, well, icon just means image. So <laughs> technically yeah. a symbol and an icon <laughs> are the same word. You know? <laughs> anyway, it just depends on how you're using them. And so, <laughs> so anyway, and it's not for nothing that Nativity scenes were first invented by Francis of Assisi. You know, that's not surprising that I was a Catholic. I mean, um, so I think, I think nativity scenes are fine. I think it's about knowing, having a deeper understanding and, and thought process around how to use images and how images are supposed to fit within worship. Anyway, so it is interesting, though, to see that, like, Easter and Christmas have remained, even though the rest of it's just totally fallen out, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's not... The problem with that is you end up with just this idea that like Christmas and Easter sort of exist as these independent and separate holidays that aren't connected to each other for any reason. And so you have no idea why they are the dates that they are. And then they just end up having this identity that's pretty much nothing more than like 4th of July. <laughs> it's just another yeah. festive holiday, you know, because because people forget, people don't realize that Christmas leads to Easter with a, with a lot of things that happen in between and after mirroring the life of Christ. They're not just like two random dates that Christians picked a long time ago, you know? So, yeah. So how, so, so Christians at this, a lot of young Christians who are probably maybe regenerate are going to church and they're starting to ask questions like, why, why are we paying attention? Like, 
why do we do it like this? And why do we have rock and roll music? And why do we have video announcements and stuff like that? Yeah. And live streams plowing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into really cool live streams and stuff. Yeah. And then someone asked the question, so why do we do this on Sundays? Uh, yeah. And then some churches would say, well, actually, it's not necessary to, on Sundays. We actually have a Saturday night service now and a Saturday gotcha. afternoon service and a Monday afternoon service now. <laughs> and don't forget it, Wednesday just, nights, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, to, just to get everyone that could possibly maybe donate some money to this project inside yeah. this building. So uh, as, we, as we like continue down this road and we're just uh, consistently forgetting more and more of the liturgical calendar, uh, and things are just, and the guidelines are becoming more and more uh, invisible, really, as uh, in the calendar. What would you say, or how like, how would you say we need to resurrect a formative historical Protestant tradition in evangelical churches? It's a, it's like my, it's a really big question. I feel like my entire life will be de- devoted to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In some degree, but. So I think part of it, um, you know, part of it, there's been a movement uh, that I've looked into, some called the Hebrew Roots Movement, and very focused on the question of asking things like, well, the the Torah says we should worship on Saturday, so why are we worshiping on Sunday, right? Yeah. And they ask it like nobody's ever asked the question before. Like it's never been addressed. It's never, uh-huh. you know, and and the problem is that that evangelicals have been so good at separating themselves from traditionalism that they've totally lost all sight of healthy tradition. So they have no idea why they worship on Sunday. It's sort of just like, like the body is animated by like the, the nerves are still active after a body's dead, but they don't really know why they're doing it, you know? Yeah. So someone asks a question like, you know, um, so I, I was on a, I was on, I had to fly to Moscow for school and I was talking to this guy and, we got into this talk about like theology and stuff. And then at one point he said, are you a Sabbatarian? I was like, what do you mean? He said, do you worship on Saturday? He said, do you worship on the Sabbath? I was like, which one? <laughs> he yeah. said, he said uh, Saturday. And then I explained to him just the, and he was a Christian. I explained to him the biblical, the early church answer to that question, why you worship on Sunday. And he was like, I've never heard that before. And it's like, we end up, if you separate yourself from tradition, you just play through the the old questions over and over again, acting like no one's ever asked them before, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's definitely true with Christmas because it's like, well, why do we have this pagan holiday with the Christmas tree and stuff like that? And it's like, well, we used to be pagans. So that's why yeah. we have this pagan holiday, <laughs> you know, yep. but it's been redeemed, you know, just like we have, you know, so. So, anyway. so what, what was your answer to that guy? On the Sunday thing. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of time with him. So what I said to him was that you have to understand that the reason the Sabbath was set up, the way the way that the Sabbath was set up was for two reasons, was to commemorate Christ or the uh, God's rest on the seventh day after creation, um, and to commemorate um, the the escape from slavery out of Egypt. Right, that was always the command. It was remember the Sabbath because you rested from slavery. And I rested from creation. And so I told him that when Christ resurrected on Sunday, he didn't resurrect on Saturday. It's important to know that he resurrected on Sunday, which in, in the Old Testament is always promising this day of the Lord, the Lord's day that's coming, whenever whenever God will set up this new covenant with his people. 
Yeah. So he's setting up Sunday as the new Lord's Day by doing that because he's saying this is the day of the Lord. <laughs> this is the day that the Lord has made as the new as the new Sabbath because that's the day that was prophesied that would be the Lord's Day. Yeah. And uh, so he resurrects on Sunday, marking a new creation. If anyone's in, in Christ, he's a new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. So he he marks new creation, that rest that comes after that that um, that creation. And then number two, he's freeing his people out of slavery to sin. So Sunday marks this new creation and this freedom from slavery in the same way that the the first the original Sabbath marked the completion of creation and the freedom of slavery out of Egypt. Yeah. So we we are being made free from a new slavery, right? Exactly. I couldn't get into all the eighth day significant stuff, like the eighth day circumcision, new creation language and stuff, but I got into that part at least, and that was that was good. And he was like, I never thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that's an interesting, and it's funny to talk about it around this time too, because if any tradition is still hanging on by a thread, it's Christmas time. Exactly, uh, yeah. Even just in spite of the, like, just grand commercialism of it, and like the rampant uh secularization of it yeah but um like that's the one that's still hanging on by a thread and, and it's uh, even bigger now than it was like it didn't really become big until charles dickens so like, it was christmas was like there but it wasn't the Chris, christian holiday you know until yeah. charles dickens you know what i mean and yeah. so it's actually kind of cool that even though that somehow christmas has like risen to this really special height <laughs> while the other ones have disappeared which is sad <laughs> you know but anyway it is interesting go ahead so uh yeah that's funny and that's also funny that art uh specifically art um influenced culture in that way yeah exactly. to the point that we're downstream from that and we only really celebrate christmas and um and the coming and the coming of the lord on that day so or in that season so uh so how do we how do we take uh, our traditionalism that we experience at Christmas time and like front load it into going into next year? So we're at the end of 2020 and and there's a lot of young people who are just so bored of the rock and roll um, mega church kind of thing yeah. and they want to just return to historic Protestantism really. But they can't like. But there's no access to it because unless they become Catholics, yeah, right. If they they're really starving for a historic traditionalism, um, and all they can do is really go to Catholicism. So what what would you say to them? Uh, like, how do you take the traditionalism that's still attached to Christmas and then drive it into the next year? Yeah, and, apply, and begin applying it to the liturgical calendar. Yeah, um, it's weird too. So like, I'll give it strange situation that happened recently that I think speaks to this a little bit. Um, I was working somewhere else before my current job, and uh, this was just a couple months ago. And I was talking to a lady in her 60s, and she goes to a Methodist church in town. And uh, she started asking me about my church and stuff like that. And then she said, wait, did they not even do the liturgical colors there? And then she said, did they not even light candles there? And it was like, this is the Methodist church. And it's like, even if a lot of people at my own church were to go sit on that church, they would walk into a really beautiful building with candles and colors and they would think this is Catholic. So, and part of it, so I think part of it is a lack of denominational dialogue within Protestants. Cause some of them, it's weird some of them have retained the tradition, have, some have retained more traditions than others. They don't know yeah. why. I don't, think, I, don't think any, I don't think any of them 
really know why they do what they do, you know, and that's true for Catholics too. I think the reason why um, so many Protestants become Catholic is that they study tradition and they really get into it and then they become Catholic and they're probably the only Catholics in the room at that point that actually know why the traditions are being done. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you talk to, to Catholics that have been Catholic their whole life, that you get a lot of, this is just the way that it is yep. <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, and that's true for Protestants too. It's just like once, once a Protestant go, starts going down the tradition study road, they end up, if they end up leaving, they actually understand what they're doing. So anyway, um, so I think number one is, um, I think number one, the first thing to do, and this is what I've tried to do myself, is individually get really immersed in the in, in liturgical calendar. Not just to say like, here's some cool old thing that we should do, but to say like, this is how this has benefited my spiritual life. So, um, so I use the 2019. I think I have it over there. Anyway. I use the 2019 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. It's a modified version of the Book of Common Prayer going back to the 16th century, early Reformation stuff. And it follows the readings of the liturgical calendar. And if you do its lectionary, which is the daily readings of the scripture, you'll read the whole Old Testament once, the whole New Testament twice, and the entire, the Psalter, you'll read through it 12 times. And but it organizes the books of the Bible in reference to each other, to where you're reading books of the Bible from the New and Old Testament that mirror each other and speak yeah. to each other, and then also fit within the time of the year that you're in. So, like right now, we're reading through Revelation in the mornings because we're prep. We're, we're still preparing for the second coming of Christ. Right, we're in Advent, so the uh, the Old Testament readings are from Isaiah, and the the New Testament readings are from Revelation. So it's like this preparation for Christ coming, you know. So I think I think it starts with an individual thing of like how can I become immersed in this and then can start to kind of ease your way with other people to kind of introduce them to this sort of thing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what's the first thing? Say you are going to like a wannabe Bethel church, right? <laughs> what's, and they're like it's just it's just and they're singing um Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, yeah. Eve. Um, uh, and Believe, that's what I said. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And, and so you're, and then you, and you be, and you begin entertaining these ideas and you become convinced by them. And you think now we start to start implementing them. Where would be the first place that you would start implementing them? So this has been easier for me. So I have to think about this if I wasn't in the situation I'm in. Like, so for me, I'm liturg liturgist at my church. Yeah. So I just do it. Basically for me, like yeah. I just, I, I'm using the, the book of common prayer, uh, proper prayers for that time of the year. <laughs> People don't even know it, but I'm just using those. <laughs> and, uh, and the, the scripture readings that go along the salt, the, each, each Sunday has its own Psalm that's supposed to be read that, that Sunday. I'm reading that Psalm for the Sunday morning. Um, so, it's hard so if I'm taking myself out of the equation because not everybody's in my situation. It's hard for this kind of thing because there's always a battle of Christianity between innovation and traditionalism, right? That's, yeah. It's always there and it's there for a reason that's healthy. The problem is when traditionalists, and I would identify myself as one, start to go to someone that's more innovation-minded and say, we need to implement these traditions. For me, as someone that really loves tradition, loves being connected to that historical 
uh, aspect of Christianity. It's like I'm giving them this like chocolate chip cookie. Like here, just try this amazing thing that I have for you. <laughs> You're gonna love yeah. it, you know. Um, like recently I've started learning how to play the piano for my grandmother who's been playing hymns on the piano since she was like 20. <laughs> so she's been playing forever. So I'm learning these historical hymns um, from her. And it's like, this is the chocolate chip cookie of traditionalism. Like it's being passed down, you know what I mean? Yep. But you hand that to someone that's more focused on innovation and they immediately feel like it's legalism. Like you just give me a bunch of rules to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And so I don't know, that's where I'm at right now is like, how do you bridge that gap? Because I've seen that play out for myself in terms of my failures to implement changes. These people start to feel like it's like, whoa, this is too pushy. This is too different. And uh, because it's like, oh, wait, I'm seeing it as this thing that's helped to build my spiritual life. But you are seeing it. And I totally get why you're seeing it as something that I'm just trying to give you as like a here's some more Torah commands to follow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I don't exactly know how to bridge that gap. Yeah. So um, is it something to do with the overall theological view of the Sunday service? I think, yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that people, I think in every Christian, almost every Christian tradition that we have, and I'm including them that everything that we do. So I'm talking Sunday services, I'm talking um, Bible readings, every, everything that we're doing. I think now it's just that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do this is the mentality, not I'm doing this for this specific reason historically, and this is why Christians have always done it. So yeah. I think people are, I think that's what's amazing about tradition is that it lives longer than the understanding of the tradition. <laughs> like people will do it even after they don't know why, you know? And, uh, but the danger of that is that it turns into what it is now. And that is people just doing, um, people just doing stuff because that's what they've always done, you know? Yeah. So one of the interesting things um, is that uh, when you when you remove yourself from the like tradition and the reason the theological reasons why you're doing it and the liturgical calendar and stuff, you yeah. end up almost always injecting, especially into Protestantism, you yeah, almost yeah. always end up injecting like Gnosticism into the service, yeah. and because it no longer becomes a theological. Um, uh event in which there is academic reasoning behind each part of it it becomes an experience you know yeah. so it just becomes the mass uh yeah. when you go and experience christ and then all these events that you kind of just haphazardly choose like easter and um christmas and maybe pentecost sunday if you're going to get there uh they're they're all just just a bigger events bigger experiential events and they yeah. just really become like uh tent revivals rather than yeah. uh uh congregations specific members of congregations covenant congregations coming together and that's kind of like where we've drifted to completely now yeah. where it's become hey come in here and experience the holy of holies because it's here you yeah. know rather than partake in the covenant sacraments that have been handed down to you yeah i started working in a town that i hadn't worked in before so people didn't know me and that sort of thing and i had that one of those amazing conversations where someone tries to get you to come to the church and oh, they yeah. sort of typecasted me right because i'm this guy in my 20s you know a young couple They're like this is the kind of guy we wanted our church and uh so he starts talking to me about how amazing their music is right it does the our music is really good we got this amazing guitar and stuff and then he's going on a thing and i was like actually i kind of prefer the old stuff and then he was like, oh, we have a traditional service too. 
And at that point, it's like when you have the, a lot of churches do this, they have the traditional and the contemporary service. You have two churches. You have yep. two entirely different churches you're trying to maintain at the same time. Or what they do is they just shove psalms into a certain format that pleases everybody right? yeah. <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? This is like or a play, slow or, strum bass guitar. Yeah. Or play the modern stuff slow enough and quiet enough to please everybody. <laughs> There's yeah, sort of yeah. these weird compromises that happen, which I think is fine and I think necessary to some extent. But that's not thinking carefully through every individual thing that's done. Um, and like you said about revivalism, like modern evangelicalism has pulled more from its as its traditional um, structure from revivalism than it did from historic Christianity. And yeah. so, um, and that's part of what makes it difficult. It's like traditional Christianity and modern evangelicalism have two different, two totally different liturgical uh, traditions, total, two totally different liturgical makeups. And so that's why you'll talk to a Baptist and they have no idea what a liturgical calendar is. And then you talk to like a Methodist or something like that. And they do, but they don't really know why they do it. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But the Baptist doesn't know why they do what they do either. Right. They just know that they're against tradition. And so even though they just build other traditions, but. Yeah. Um, it's because James White for. has been saying for a long time, is that just your tradition? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And they've all been listening to him. Yeah. And they're like, no tradition. <laughs> No tradition. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. don't want traditions. Yeah. And that, like I told someone recently, like you don't get to choose whether or not you have a tradition. You get to choose whether your tradition is, is chosen intentionally or not. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you're, you're going to have one. You just have to decide whether you're going to think about it before you do it or not. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. So. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. Like you cannot help but have a liturgy. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, what is it? what is the theological position of your liturgy so if like that person that was inviting you to their church they're essentially saying you will encounter the lord here in this yeah. experience on the sunday you because know? of our music right it has <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with Specifically like the communion table of, it has nothing to do with the word you know <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, because yeah. of the atmosphere and it's just yeah. it's just the finny revivalism that is like yeah. now has screens and smoke yeah which he would have used had he have uh um had he have had the access to it and he did exactly, everything he yeah. could at the time so yeah, and you'll, just, have, you'll have people with these smoke machines and fancy blue lights and stuff and they'll say then you ask them about you know traditional aesthetics and church right like you know the renaissance and whatever and they'll say we don't believe in aids and worship <laughs> we don't believe in using aids and worship you know like yeah. in terms of images or whatever it is and it's like you do that anyway <laughs> that's yeah, not, not that the answer. I don't think the answer is just to go pull everything from the Catholic Church or whatever. But the thing is, is what happens when someone doesn't think through what they're doing, and all they say is we're not Catholic or we're not something else. They end up just building something up that may be worse <laughs> because they're not yeah, thinking yeah. about it. They're not thinking about what they're doing. They're just thinking about what they're not doing. You know, and yeah. that's not helpful. You know. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's funny because um, a lot of people, like uh, throughout the majority of history, a lot of Christians would 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 come like especially the reformers and stuff early then the puritans they would come to our services and say this is just inappropriate yeah this is exactly. just remarkably inappropriate for what's supposed to be going on yeah you know they, and they every, feel more I think, comfortable going back to rome if they came to one of our church services yeah now. yeah they would <laughs> you know what I mean? oh, yeah we'll take the stench yeah exactly out of rome rather than this, <laughs> yeah, this exactly, smells a yeah. lot nicer but it's a yeah overall more horrid exactly, so yeah, yeah they would do that and then when i and when i talk to people about that and say that that kind of music is inappropriate that style of 
worship isn't appropriate for what we're doing. Um, uh, what's, what's funny is they recognize that because they don't do it on around Christmas. Yeah. yeah Christmas exactly. is, a, is a much more solemn occasion. Yeah, exactly. And it's like Easter will ramp it up to 150% on Easter. <laughs> but at Christmas, we understand because of Dickens, really, that this is a more solemn occasion. It's quieter. It's more gentle. Um, yeah. So we'll sing slower songs. We can get away with hymns in this occasion because they're kind of lumped into the tradition. We'll turn um, off the lights with candles and stuff like that. They don't even, these are people that don't even know what the word vigil means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they know <laughs> that that's what they're gonna do. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then they'll have this really solemn, slow uh, a walk, and it'll be a lot more scripture reading. Yeah. Know? And, it, and it's just interesting because everyone recognizes that that is appropriate for that occasion. And, and, um, but it's not appropriate for all the occasions because we've separated what yeah. is actually going on in the service. What are the covenant group of believers doing in the service? At yeah, that I've never thought about that, but that's so true. Like if you, if, <laughs> like if you took, say for example, my church, uh, we do like an Easter vigil service or whatever, or not Easter, uh, Christmas vigil service. The night before and uh and it's lights are down candles are out sermon you know all that stuff and it's way more quiet way more somber like you just described but if you put that at every other sunday everybody's gonna say well this church is weird yeah. <laughs> this church is like mystical <laughs> it's For like real? what's yeah. the difference like this is the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. the exact same thing apart from the, the the whole emphasis is in a different area where if you were yeah. to emphasize the uh being solemn and reverent and yeah. that, uh, every sunday rather than being overtly joyful and expansive in your um outward goingness like uh and everyone was a lot more solemn and reverent every sunday i mean that is more appropriate for what's going on yeah um, on the sunday service for like for jonathan edwards one of his resolutions was he refused to joke on sundays (laughs) he refused to laugh if you say that to someone today like hey we shouldn't laugh the pastor would be like well i have 15 jokes lined up yeah exactly i hold sermon as a joke (laughs) exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um but on, on Christmas Eve, it's not. On Christmas yeah. Eve, that is a serious occasion in which Tiny Tim needs to come to church. Yeah, exactly. Because this is the season where all men are equal. But it yeah. really should be like that all the time. Every Sunday should be the reminder that all men are equal. Yeah, and I think uh, it's, it's kind of something I thought about a lot because there's, there's several different... I'm trying to think in some future church sense that like when the church is unified and that kind of thing what that will look like because there's two different kinds of liturgy that I love. One is, uh, one is the traditional quiet meditative worship service. You know what I mean? At the same time, I also really love uh, the, the liturgy as I want to call it of gospel churches that you go yeah. there. Everyone's 100% in the sermon. There's like, like my dad one time preached, but they, he did a pastor swap thing where the gospel pastor preached at his church and he preached at the gospel church. And he was like, after he came back, he was talking about how great it was. Everybody was really into the sermon and stuff. And then the gospel pastor was probably depressed the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> really hate this. You know what I mean? But it's not something that happens like in a Baptist church. Most of the time, if, 
if someone calls out an amen or something, it's like, whoa, that guy's, <laughs> what's his deal? Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Instead of it being, and nobody's telling those people to do it, but it's like, um, it's a sense that it develops organically. And so, and I, I thought about this somewhat of maybe there's some kind of healthy balance of pre, um, pre-confession in church. Does your church do like a confession in the worship service? Yeah. Yeah, so like pre-confession in the worship service and post-confession in the worship service. They're like pre-confession, there's sort of like this meditative quietness. And then post-confession, there's this sense of joy and thanksgiving. Yeah. Not in a sense of irreverence, but in the sense of like, because I mean, the, the communion meal is a Eucharistic meal. It's like a Thanksgiving meal. So there's yeah. still supposed to be this like deep joy that's part of that too, you know. And so anyway, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely, it. yeah. For like, and especially, I wonder what um like Lee Hart would say to some of that or uh, yeah. Wilson what they would say about pre, or even during communion or post-communion, like a different style of music being that is really appropriate to that celebratory occasion. Because yeah. the book of Ecclesiastes says there's time to sing and dance and be joyful. Yeah, exactly. And, but there's also yeah. times, and I wonder if this could all come together in the, in the, in the service. Yeah, that's, I, what I, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's like, is once you confess your sins and then you have that, that assurance of pardon declared to you it's like well let's celebrate <laughs> you know what yeah, i mean like yeah. this is a joyful thing and we have that at my church we have that after uh, the communion meal take communion and then we sing the ducks we stand up lift hands and sing the doxology and then my dad who's the pastor does a blessing he does a blessing for the church and then everybody thunders together amen this big like rowdy amen you know yeah and uh and so there is this there is that sense in my church of a of a tonal transition you know what i mean um but not with the music and i think the music is the thing that hasn't really been thought through because it's been so it's been uh evangelicals have been so long trying to accommodate everybody that they haven't thought about why they do what they do anymore you know yeah so yeah so i would i would be interested in in what kind of thinking that and maybe maybe the whole point would be uh, there's a, there's lots of certain styles of music that are just inappropriate yeah. for the whole service yeah so what's interesting is when you talk to people about um their favorite styles of music in in church uh if they if they're a thinking person and they've thought and they've listened and they've read and they know kind of know what they're thinking they always say yep psalm singing hymn singing as a huge group of believers belting out songs or yeah. gospel. No one ever says, you know what? I think Bethel is the apex of worship. Yeah, exactly. No yeah, one yeah. says that. Everyone understands that that is the low end. That yeah, is the low end. yeah, exactly. And uh, I always say like when we're in heaven and we're all singing, there is no way Hillsong's music will get in there. <laughs> It'll be the music that's playing on the radio as you walk in. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Service, you know? yeah, exactly. Like hand, yeah. handle will be up there with the orchestra yeah. and like uh carl lentz will be like hey i've got a song if you want to you know who carl lentz is like, uh, no no, no you don't need to know and he'll go up and say hey i've got a song and i think handle will maybe slap him yeah once he looks over the sheet i know at the bare minimum they won't have multiple services you know what i mean like at the yeah. bare minimum there won't be like a uh oh okay there's the music for you guys and there's your music for you guys and that kind of thing because I think that I think the problem is here's the way that I see worship music and how it's supposed to go. I and I thought about this a lot recently because I am wired to traditionalism. Uh, Paul said, or I think it's Paul, uh, encourage each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's like, so what's that mean? What is that? 
that try that tripart aspect of worship service mean? Well, Psalms obviously are the Psalms. The Psalms are straight from Scripture, and they inform everything else because Scripture always informs everything else. Hymns are songs that are sang in the church historically that become part of the liturgical and historical life of the church. Songs that stick to the church and that stand the test of time, right? So yeah. this is songs like Amazing Grace. These are songs like hymns, that, the hymns that everyone still knows, even though nobody goes to churches that sing them the right way anymore, you know? Yeah. That have stuck into the blood. And other ones that people don't know that are, that are sound and that have stuck through the times. And then spiritual songs to me is the encouragement to continue writing more things with those two aspects and forming that last category. You know what I mean? So if you if you depart from psalms and hymns, you have no right to write spiritual songs because you're not based on the thing that's going to make those have meat to them, you know? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you never do anything new because there was a time when hymns were new, right? But it means that those two things need to inform, you know, modern yeah. music. So I think if, if the writers at Hillsong went through a heavy you know, carnivorous diet of just hymns and psalms. They just studied the hymns and psalms all day long. Then I think that would be the license that you would need, like a musical seminary kind of thing, where that's like the license that you then require to be able to write your own stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of the way I see it. So they can still write new stuff, even using instruments that we use now. But it's got to be informed and um, based on, you know, the based on scripture and based on what the church has always done, you know, so. Yeah, so you, you would say it has to be in the same vein as yeah. those, in the same genre of music? Yeah, I don't even know if, if genre is, so, because I think the genre can still develop. So I think a good example of this would be gospel. That, like, gospel pulls all of the, uh, many of the techniques and lessons from historic Christianity in terms of its music, but then develops them in such a way that it, you never feel like in gospel music that's irreverent. It takes you to this whole other height. But I mean, I feel like if Handel knew about gospel music, he would have wanted to use it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and so there's certain, I think it develops depending on what area of the world you're in. I think that as Christianity goes to the nations, each nation will have its own adaptation of what that looks like. Yeah. But I think the main problem is right now, it's, it's so siloed. Like contemporary Christianity and music is no nowhere near having a dialogue with historic Christianity and music, you know, so, and, but I think you see that weird dissonance play out to bring this all back around at Christmas time. There's a sense yeah. of like, this is the time to be, to think about it and to play hymns and that, that kind of thing. And it's also, it's also really refreshing around this time too. It's yeah. like remarkably refreshing for, for everyone to just yeah. sing hymns and be reverent and solemn. Yeah. And Sunday services and stuff yeah and it seems it almost seems like a prostitution of the service around that time to not be reverent yeah um, exactly and i think if you had that for the whole liturgical calendar i think the same transition that happened that i'm that i'm thinking about happening during a worship service of you know meditation and contemplation to joy uh, that could happen at different times of the year you know christmas being one of joy and celebration yeah. Advent being one of contemplation and meditation. Um, Epiphany being one of joy and celebration. Lent being one of, of, of contemplation and repentance, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then same thing with uh, the transition between uh, Good Friday and Easter, right? There's a sense of that same, that same process. So 
I don't know, I think that could be kind of a cool thing to start experimenting with in worship services between those two things. Yeah. And I think we'll see more and more of that as, um, as we kind of like just go down this road. Cause it's really an unsustainable model right now for most of evangelicalism. Yeah. People, definitely. yeah. Cause people, if it's experientialism that they're chasing, then there's always a new experience somewhere else. Yeah. You know, rather than. I think experientialism too is what's led so much of the divide. Not, not that experience is bad, right? Like there's still a healthy aspect of it, but I mean, yeah. you, the way you, if you, you can hear a, like a, Pentecostal talk about experience and worship and hear an Eastern Orthodox person talk about it. And it'd be, it'd be similarly describing an experience, but their worship service could not be more different because they're both chasing a certain experience. And if you, every individual is chasing their own experience, that's how you end up parsing everything up into these little denominational categories that are very separate and don't talk to each other because yeah. everybody has their own definition of what makes them feel something, you know? Yeah. So. so it's interesting. It's interesting. And it's kind of magical that at Christmas time, the whole evangelical scope of people come together and sing hymns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is finally cool. like the Lord's yeah. there. Like, finally, this is the season. Yeah, it exactly. took a pagan holiday, a redeemed pagan holiday for you to do it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully okay. in a very post-millennial sense, that kind of emphasis will start bleeding out into everything. And what it'll take is art like Dickens to to manifest that kind of reverence in other occasions yeah. so I was, I was thinking the other day so obviously my children and i have watched um a christmas carol and grinch recently yeah which are essentially the same movie essentially the same story rather yeah for sure. um and his and the scrooge's storyline and the grinch's storyline so uh scrooge was written uh a christmas carol was written in 1855 right or 1850 yeah. or around that time in the 1850s yeah. Grinch was written in 1955. Uh, so we're coming up to potentially a new story like that. And yeah. just in this conversation, I was thinking maybe it will be a type of uh, story that takes the Easter story and brings more reverence to that occasion. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what Christians need to be thinking about. They need to be thinking about well, how can my art influence the culture yeah, in, exactly. in, a God, in a great theological way. Yeah, Which and how do you what, do that with other holidays too? Like, how do we do that with Pentecost yeah. and Ascension? And people, and kind of people might think, oh yeah, Christmas is, is that's low-hanging fruit, that's easy pickings, but it wasn't for Dickens. He yeah. wrote a story at a time when no one really cared that much yeah. and changed the whole scope of Christmas over the world to the point exactly. that big, one of the biggest companies, Coca-Cola, is having to bow their knee to his story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, story wins, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So narrative the narrative so it'd be interesting for christian creators to start thinking about that because just the cyclical nature of stories uh it's coming up like if you take lord of the rings was a smash hit when it came out harry yeah. potter was a smash hit like there's something new that's coming you know yeah. and there's the some... cool thing about about the christmas story and about the grinch is that it becomes a protective barrier for leaving christmas that when you start to get people that are grumpy about Christmas and like, oh, it's just more presents and stuff, you can type them as a Scrooge or a Grinch. Now you can say you're just being a Grinch. And, and all of a sudden you've just categorized them. Oh, they're the grumpy person that doesn't care about Christmas. Let's ignore them and continue having fun. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It becomes this parameter so that way you can't stop loving Christmas, you know, because you don't want to be cast as the Scrooge or as the yeah. Grinch, you know. So the only, the only thing that the secular world can do to Christmas is – 
I mean, they tried to take it, I think, for a while. But I think they gave up on that. All they can do is commercialize it or put, you know, Gay Pride Month at the opposite end of the year, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. in June. And uh, I think that's all they really can do is one of those two things because it's such a powerful – and I that's people get mad about the commercialism stuff, and it's like, to be honest, we don't know if there would be a Christmas still without the commercialism. It's obviously a negative aspect of it, but it's definitely sustained it, you know what I mean? Because yeah. the idea of a family not giving presents to each other at Christmas – is is absurd now <laughs> you know what i mean what's, what's really funny is so in england you, you no one gives gifts to easter yeah there's no gift giving at easter there's you eat chocolate eggs and stuff because the easter bunny but you don't yeah. there's no gift giving whereas here i know someone that bought all their kids new phones at easter yeah yeah and it's like there's usually what? yeah where i'm at there's usually a shopping trip associated <laughs> usually yeah. there's a shopping trip at some it's point. peculiar and it's like it's like the, the secular world has said, okay, we need to desacralize this. So let's just commercialize it. Let's just plug in our commercialization. And yeah. the Christians, in order, really, in order to overcome that, all they need to do is write one smash hit exactly, story yeah. around it. And then they buy more like, presents. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. then at that time, they'll be like, oh, we've, we've redeemed it. Now let's really buy the presents. Exactly. Let's really, yeah, exactly. Eat, let's really feast and let's really yeah. have a great time around easter because that's an example of how joy always wins too it's like the people that are hating christmas will never win because it's christmas is so much more fun than them <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean so yeah. it's like we'll win you know so, yeah and it's like thanksgiving too yeah like, exactly like what it's just plugged in a great story yeah i think you could easily do it with thanksgiving because you had all the people that are just like well thanksgiving is just a example of the patriarchal oppression of native americans and stuff and everybody's eating turkey is like shut up <laughs> you know what i mean like i'm trying yeah. to have fun over here it's so joyful why are you trying to ruin it exactly exactly i know so yeah that, that that'll be exciting for uh, christians to begin redeeming other holidays like they've exactly. successfully completely 100 percent successfully redeemed this one exactly and, so as they start redeeming other holidays, we'll see the liturgical calendar begin to blossom in a really post-millennial yeah. sense. The culture exactly, will, yeah. the church affects the culture and then the stories in the culture affect the church. And it will just, there's this is positive feedback loop. Yeah. And we'll just see Christmas all year round. And that's one of the ways that the liturgical calendar can help to unite the church. You know, even with our various differences and different ways of celebrating each time of the year, we can still share that same calendar together, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and it, and it essentially does unite the church. So every church at this time is acting in a very Christian, historical Christian sense. Exactly. Historically, oh yeah, just historically Christian sense. And so the whole church is united. The whole globe, the global church is yeah. united at this time, singing hymns about celebrating the coming, Christmas, coming of the Lord. Yeah, exactly. And then that will just, in, in, in that post-millennial sense, will just spread and spread and spread to the rest of life. The more yeah. and more Christian, the, the more and more Christians write more and more stories exactly, about how yeah. each individual aspect of the world is a beautiful event designed by God for His people. Definitely, yeah. All right. Let's get Merry stuff. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.